lot of 2020 has been one of those it's been one of those years where uncertainty uh resilience uh all of that sort of stuff everyone is everyone is talking about but for you it was like a whole different level can you talk through how your year has been yeah so so my 2020 is uh has been pretty interesting i i suffered a, um a spinal cord injury in august 2019 um and yeah basically from there i've literally been rehabbing for basically the you know the whole whole year and um yeah i guess for me this year hasn't really felt any different because i was kind of you know in this path of you know getting back to being a normal person again and and you know um trying to achieve achieve my goals that i set out from a, a early day of of my injury so yeah i mean the the year has been pretty crazy with with what's going on and you know a lot of my events have been cancelled um but for me it was just more of a year um to prepare myself um for when racing did start again and um yeah just i kind of feel like it to me in some some way it's been it's been somewhat normal um because you know obviously with an injury you comes a lot of rehab and, and training so i was kind of just focused on on all of that and and being in new zealand um you know we're pretty lucky here we had that you know six week lockdown and then we were out of it and kind of wiped the virus so it was kind of you know normal here and um i guess where i live i felt like it was you know just living a normal life again so yeah, it has been a, a mental year and yeah, I feel like, um, yeah, I'm going to look back on uh, 2020 as like a year that has thrown a lot of crazy things at me. Yeah, I, I, we will move on because I don't want to spend uh, all of the time kind of dwelling on this, on this, uh, you know, this, this, this event, but the, um, the footage of the crash looked insane. Do I mean, did you have you kind of blocked that out? Like, what what happened at the time, or, or was that like a slow motion thing where you kind of saw your life flashing before your eyes? Yeah, it, it was. It definitely wasn't slow motion. Um, it happened so quick, and you know, before I knew it, I was off the side of the track, and you know, in a whole heap of pain, and not able to feel my legs. So, um, yeah, it definitely didn't go go by slow. Um, yeah, I mean, looking looking back on the photos, I mean, I feel like I can still go back and look at them and, you know, I feel comfortable looking at them, whereas, you know, probably with some people that struggle looking at, at something like that. But I guess uh, in a sport like mine, you've you've got to sort of overcome that sort of fear and, um, you know, take, take it, you know, as it comes and take you know those injuries and this this sort of uh these sort of things that that can happen to you um i guess in any sport as well um you know it's the last thing that you're really thinking of is is being injured and um i guess when it when it happens um yeah it all all gets thrown up pretty quickly and you know life can uh, change change with a flash and in, in, in that flash what was it was it was it a route that was coming out through the 
through some rocks? What was the? Yeah, yeah, it was just um, so the day before we had qualifying and it um, it rained quite heavy, so the track got um, yeah it got pretty worn in, and um, yeah, the next day was last day of practice before finals, um, first run down. And yeah, just a, a route that was exposed from the day before um, was sticking out on top of this rock, sort of rock rollover, and yeah, caught my back wheel and and sent me over the handlebars. Generally, uh, I mean that must be so common though. Uh, like when you're when you're having a good run, even where you know there is no major incident like this. Like how fast are things going? Like how much are you calculating along the along the way? How can you talk us through? Like, some of the mental stuff that's happening yeah i mean um calculating a, a downhill run is 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 not oh yeah i don't know it's it's so difficult to explain because when we start you know we get we start and we're into it like you know straight away so like everything comes at you so quick and i think it's more so you know, you kind of do the calculating probably in your practice runs and then race runners like putting that perfect race run together. But like trying to, I guess, trying to calculate your run, you know, when you're doing it is pretty difficult because, you know, like I said, everything comes at you so quickly and, you know, you've got to have those fast reactions to be able to switch a line or, you know, change something up um, if something has changed on the track um so yeah it's uh i guess it's definitely like a run is based on you know i guess the being in the moment thinking in the moment not thinking ahead um i mean we do that but you know it's just uh a sport that's so fast and everything happens so quickly so yeah you got to calculate it um you know within a split second just on a slight tangent but you know i was probably mountain biking in the 90s when i was a kid and then uh you look now it seems like a whole different world in terms of the bikes the geometry the technology um it's like what what happened but how how does how has that how has the tech the geometry that kind of thing how has that influenced like your lines you know that exactly what you're talking about like the the the, the speed yeah, I, I guess um, from when you were riding mountain bikes in the 90s, you're probably just on a fully rigid thing with, with V-brakes and no suspension. And it was more so about getting down the hill and, and not crashing. Whereas like the technology nowadays, I feel like the bikes the bikes are so good. Um, the suspension, the tires, the everything is so good nowadays that, um, you know, those bikes can handle anything and it's more so up to the rider um, to be able to, you know, switch up those lines. Also the bike too. Um, I feel like if you have a good bike, being able to switch lines and, you know, ride ticky stuff, um, you know, comes quite easy with a, with a good bike and good setup. Yeah. We started to get, we started to get some suspension. I, I had the front shocks, uh, oh. but, but some of the, some of the richer kids they had, they started to get the rear suspension, but there was, there, there were kind of two schools, like the hardcore were the rigid. And, you know, if you, if you're riding suspension, you're a bit of a pansy, but I guess that's changed. Yeah. That, no, yeah, that, that definitely has changed, but I know when I first started, I literally started on a bike with just, you know, hundred mil of, 
um, front travel. And, um, yeah, I guess I feel like that built me into the writer I am today because, like, I learned so much from riding, you know, a bike with, you know, hardly any suspension. So you've got to adapt to that. I mean, that's all I really knew. Um, and then when I went to a, a bike that had full suspension, I was just like, holy shit, this is crazy. Like, you know, it was like floating on the moon. Um, the the way that, you know, the technology had improved over those, you know, few years and been able to afford a, a better bike and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's uh, a definitely, I think it definitely shapes a rider um, to who they are. And I guess nowadays, like, the technology is so good that, you know, majority of kids that buy bikes, you know, are going to go out and buy, you know, a reasonably well-specced and priced bike because, you know, if you don't have that, then it's, um, you know, going to be difficult to, to win races or, or do good. As, as another thing, do you, I mean, do you think growing up where you did and, you know, having, having like forests like tomato nearby, did that, did that help shape you as well? Did that give you good a good foundation? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was pretty lucky when I started mountain biking that there was a real good um, group of guys that were riding down at the time, and so yeah, we just used to we just used to do like you know probably you know probably three four times a month um, do shuttles in the in the forest and. Um, yeah, I just used to love riding my bike and, you know, when I got bought into the sport and, you know, taken out to do that, it was pretty amazing and I just kind of, you know, got the bug for it and, um, yeah, I guess the people around me um, at the time really helped me push myself into, you know, where I am today. I was reading, uh, I think it was a 2016 article um, where you were talking about your nickname, Bulldog, at the time. And part of that maybe came from kind of this fearlessness and this, you know, just kind of pushing through uh, crashes and that kind of thing. Has that has that changed at all? Do you need a new nickname or do you think that you still have, have that? No, I think I still have that nickname because, um, yeah, I feel like I'm probably stronger than I was before. So, um, yeah, I, I actually, when I was over in Europe, I had some, some pretty massive crashes and some crashes that I thought, you know, were a repeat of, of the crash that I had at Mount St. Anne. So, yeah, I kind of, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm not invincible, but I'm, you know, built like a brick shit house, and it takes a lot to, to break me. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think I can stick with that now. Well, that's cool. That that's. I think that brings us to a really important point because you had this, you had this major crash. You were lying on the side of a mountain for like, was it five hours, and you didn't. Yeah, four four hours, pretty much. So, and and you could at that point you couldn't feel your legs, and you didn't. No. Feel, wow. No, I had no feeling in my legs whatsoever. And yeah, I mean, can you even begin to describe? I mean, for you, I mean, for anyone, but for someone who'd built, who has built their life around, you know, the use of their legs for a start. But what was that? Yeah. What was that like? I mean, man, when I, when I had the crash, um, it happened so quickly, like I said before, and I was just lying in the, in a, in a, like sort of a drain off the side of the track. And, 
I just like had this instant pain in my lower back. Um, and I was like lying on my side. I went to try roll over. Um, and I, you know, like I was like, had my two legs on my side and I went to roll over and I couldn't roll over. And yeah, it was weird. Cause I was just like trying to roll, but my body wouldn't let me and my legs weren't, weren't, you know, moving. And at the time, like, you know, in my brain, I was like, okay, I'm going to lift my leg. Or I want to try to lift my leg. And I couldn't do that. And, um, yeah, instantly I knew straight away that there was, there was a big problem. And, you know, um, I guess at the time I, there was so much, you know, going on in my head. The biggest thing was that I just wanted to be off of the hill. Like I didn't care about, you know, if I was going to be paralyzed for life or whatever, you know, nothing, nothing went through my head like that. I was, you know, this was my racing career done or, you know, my life over, what am I going to do next? It was more so I knew how, how serious the injury was. And I just um, wanted to get off the hill and yeah, um, that was, that was by far the worst day of my life when I yeah had to lie in a stretcher on my side because it was like the most comfortable position that I was, that I was in. Um, yeah, for four hours until the helicopter turned up. Wow. Yeah. On a side note, do you, has, have the organisers uh, kind of changed things around a little bit so that, you know, people don't have to lie on the side of the mountain for four hours? Um, well, you know, at each event, there's different organisers. It's not just one organiser that runs all the events. So different events, uh, you know, different places that we go to, different venues, they all have a different organiser. So um more so europe um you know everything is so so well organized there like you know you have a helicopter to you within 12 minutes and um, taken off the hill and you know probably within 40 minutes you're at the hospital so yeah europe is is really um really dialed on that note but yeah i mean you know it should be like that everywhere in, in mount saint Anne where i crashed like they hadn't had a heli on that hill for 29 years. So I guess they just thought, well, there's never, you know, going to be that chance of someone injuring themselves that bad. We have to get a heli. And like, I've been, I've been going to that place for like 10 years and I've seen people like carted down the hill with broken legs and like the exit out of the, off the mountain is not nice at all. And um, yeah, you can only really get off the hill if they walk you down or, um take you down on the back of a quad and like yeah I, I think that's the last thing that anyone wants to be doing with you know a broken leg or whatever it is um so yeah they I mean they didn't have yeah I didn't yeah it wasn't well organized they had <clears throat> two doctors on the hill um a helicopter on standby which was 20 minutes away but the pilot who was on standby was 45 minutes at home so there was no like you know, I don't, I don't know if there was any thought put into it. Like, okay, well, you know, if we have this pilot at the, at the helipad, um, you know, we call him, he's going to be, you know, at the person within 20 minutes. And that's, that's pretty reasonable, especially when, you know, someone's life's on the line, like mine, you know, with a spinal cord injury, it's always, you know, down to the minutes to have someone off the hill with an injury like this to be in to, you know, be examined and, surgery straight away so mm. yeah it was just poor organization and I guess that's on behalf of the UCI and 
and the organisers, which, you know, is a shame because UCI is like the governing body of our sport. And, um, you know, when I was, you know, faced with what I was faced, you know, there was no apologies or anything from anyone at the UCI. Um, you know, I had one, one guy from the UCI come to me and apologise, but I'd, you know, done a podcast four months after my accident and I really opened up about what I thought about everything and, you know, straight away I was contacted. But even so, like, you know, he was the first first person from the UCI to apologise, but no one else, you know, no sorries, nothing. So, yeah, it's, it's a big, big disappointment um, to me and, like, yeah, really – really let me down because you know we go out there and put our lives on the line to you know hold events and and put a you know put a show on for everyone and you know when you treat it like that it's it's pretty uh pretty sad did any of this and you know not just the treatment of uh that organization but you know even what you've had to go through this year physically did that has that changed the way that you think about the sport has it has it lost any glimmer for you? Not really, because I I love racing my bike, and I you know love doing the sport, and I'm so competitive. Um, it doesn't really change anything, but like it does, sort of change my perspective on the people at the UCI and like how it's run, and like you know, it just feels like they don't you know, to me, you know, I just feel like they don't they don't care at all. Like you know, no apologies, nothing. So like it's really sad and. You know, I, I spoke when I spoke to the dude, I was like, man, I, you know, I think there should be, you know, a uh, evacuation plan put in for each race, so every rider knows, um, knows what's going on, and you know, can feel comfortable turning up to a race and knowing that, you know, if they crash, they're going to be taken off the hill within, you know, fifteen minutes or or whatever time, and you know that there's four doctors on the hill or four doctors at the bottom. There's this many paramedics um this access and you know like I feel like that was pretty simple and then I come to world champs and I asked about it um to the writer's rep and he was like you yeah, know I haven't heard anything about that like I said is anything being done right. and he said yeah I haven't heard anything and I was like what the hell like you know one simple thing that I asked um you know can't even get done and then the organizer turned up and I said to him about it. I was talking to him about it and he was straight on the phone to the UCI. And then the next day they had an evacuation plan put out on the internet and sent to all the, all the, organi- uh, sorry, not all the organizers, all the teams, um, you know? So it's just a shame that, you know, I mentioned that at, you know, start of the year and then nothing gets done about it. And I turn up to a race and talk about it and nothing's still been done. And then, you know, they get a, a word from the organizer and then next day they've released this you know evacuation plan so mm. yeah it's a bit of a shame ultimately you made something happen do you is that well, interest, yeah does that interest you for later on down the track to to get into that part of the into that side of things well i don't know i really don't know if i want to be involved with those those people i mean like a writer's um union would be really good because at the end of the day, we're, yeah, like I said before, we're racing our bikes to put on a show for everyone. And, like, I feel like everyone is just sort of, like, pushed over by, 
you know, the UCI and like when rules are made or this is done, you know, we kind of just agree with it because we just, you know, want to race our bike. But, you know, realistically, we're, we're the backbone to it all. And I feel like if we had like a riders union, we can put a stop to things that we don't agree with or, you know, um, whatever, because at the end of the day, we, we're the one that's racing the bikes and we say we're not racing, then, you know, they don't have a race on. So, yeah, maybe down the track, something like that. But, yeah, I really don't don't really want to be involved with them. Just just on that for a second, because, um, like, again, if you look at some of, the, some of the races in the 90s, and I used to get the mountain bike magazines with the amazing aluminium um, full, suspension, full suspension downhill bikes and used to cover them and those, you know, read about the riders. But it seems like a whole different world now. Like, you've got hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram. Do you feel like... I mean, you have when you're talking about a writers' union. I mean, individually and collectively, you've got some you've got some serious audiences between you. You've got some clout. Uh, does that feel like you know that gives you that? Does that give you more power? For sure, I feel like it could. Not just for myself, like you know, um, the majority of the top writers there, you know, they're really high profile. You know, four or five hundred thousand followers. So. I feel like if we can get a group together, um, yeah, we can be be very powerful with uh, you know all the social following we have, and you know people people talking out really really makes a big difference in our sport. Have you found as well as that as well as that side is there extra responsibility? Like, do you feel a little bit of that weight? Like, you don't want to go get drunk and make a dick of yourself because you know you've got you've got kids who are aspiring to be you one day. Do you feel that? Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, for, for me, I guess there's a serious side of me and then there's a side of me that does like to do that. And I feel like any normal person is like that. So I feel like I'm really, you know, I make, I make the right decisions when I want to go out and party or, do whatever and I, I feel like um you know at races we kind of don't really do that because we've always we're always moving on pretty quickly to the next race but yeah I, I guess uh with after parties for us it's more so just the riders that that turn up I guess is you know you know the the odd fan that comes but yeah between us it's just more so the riders so yeah, I guess making a, a dick of yourself sometimes isn't too bad in front of people that you know but yeah you definitely don't want to be that person in front of a crowd of, of people that look up to you and inspire um, to, you know, be you one day. And then here's you looking like an idiot on the floor, passed out or spewing or whatever. So, yeah, I guess, um, you know, in my sport, um, you know, someone, you know, compare it to, to rugby here in New Zealand, you know, I could go out and, and have a have a good night, whereas, you know, you compare it to the likes of Bodie, you know, he's probably got to be pretty careful when he goes out and drinks and, you know, wants to have a good time with his friends because there's always someone watching and he's like, you know, an icon in New Zealand um, where I feel like, you know, myself, I'm pretty lucky with that. I can go out and, you know, be a bit loose and, and not have to worry about someone, you know, over there in the corner that knows me. Um, is going to take a photo or whatever and send it to the media. So, yeah, I guess on that scale, yeah, I'm pretty lucky with with my sport. Um, is there 
is there a is there a class system within mountain biking like i didn't even know if this is the right term but do you do like the cross-country guys look down at the downhill guys because you guys are crazy mavericks is there is there that going on well, i guess i guess there's a bit of both because i mean obviously two two totally different disciplines like you know you got to be super fit cross-country and we respect them so much for the way they ride up hills and how fast they go up and also come down them with the bikes that they ride and I, I guess it's vice versa like they probably think that we're so crazy to ride down a hill you know on on 210 mils of travel whereas they come down a hill with 100 mils so you know it's a bit it's a bit different I guess we both you know we respect each other um you know I guess evenly throughout you know across the disciplines now, this has been not a very linear conversation, and it's my fault because I'm not very good at linear conversations, but we've, we've, we've touched on, we've talked about, you know, um, that moment you're lying on the side of the mountain, and then we've also talked about Europe and then repeating some of those, potentially some of the similar crashes. So there's obviously a big gap uh, there in the middle, and, you know, you went through a lot of rehab. But um, if we go to Europe for a moment, what the hell was it like to be, to be back and to be, you know, to be at the starting line yeah it was pretty emotional um you know obviously from day one that was my dream to be racing again and um yeah i i, I remember going going up for my race run and i just like rode through you know the crowd that was at the bottom um watching the watching the race happen and going to the lift and i honestly like i had to hold back my tears because I was uh, so close to breaking down just the fact that, you know, I was back racing my bike and, you know, it was actually happening and the dream come true. Just, I don't know. I just, it was, yeah, it was crazy to think that, you know, a year on I was back in the start gate um, racing my bike competitively. That's where I'll remember that start gate. So start gate, not start line. Start gate, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. I'll just... um, and as you were saying, like you, were, I, I saw some video footage where you were kind of, you, you know, falling off, getting back on again. Um, did it change? Did anything shift in you? Like we talked about the bulldog thing before. Did anything? Did you notice any difference? No, nothing at all. Like I honestly felt normal, if not better. Um, and like. Yeah, the the six weeks that well, yeah, the four weeks that I spent riding in Europe, like that whole four weeks, I was just waiting and waiting and waiting for a crash to happen. Like I'd just been riding so good that like I hadn't even crashed. And I guess for me, like that was the biggest that was like the last thing that I wanted to get over was crashing and like was, you know, the biggest fear for me because, you know, the last time I crashed I, I snapped my back in half and um yeah, I just wanted to. Did you get me where I was explaining where I crashed or no? Nah? No. No. Yeah. So yeah, I was yeah waiting for that that moment to happen, and um yeah, I was actually riding at a um a resort and um just doing some testing there. Come into the section um where there was like a pole that was lying on the ground. I'd probably come in like 30, 40 K an hour and I didn't see the pole and the pole flicked up and went between like my crank and, and my leg. 
and just I just come to a sudden stop and just went over the handlebars, like stopped me and I sort of rolled on my front wheel and then went over the handlebars and landed straight on my back. And I was like, oh no, like I was on the ground and I was like shaking my right leg, shaking my left leg, stood up. I was like, oh, this is uh this is a, this is a good feeling. Um, and it was like, it was pretty big, like, you know, it, it rattled me. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, and from then I was like, I was so happy because it was like a day, you know, another day that I achieved something, um, obviously something that I'd never, you know, it's not something that you want to want to happen often. But, yeah, when you haven't had something in a long time and coming back from an injury, I really, you know, felt like I needed that. And, um, yeah, I guess from, from that I kind of, it kind of, you know, I took away a lot of confidence because I knew that if I could, if I crash again, then my body could handle it and there was no, mm. no pain or anything like that. So yeah, that was probably, you know, one of the biggest fears that I felt like I needed to get over. If we, and if we wind the clock back a little bit to the early days of the, uh, of the injury, what was the prognosis like? What were the, what, what were the doctors saying? Um, so I, Fractured my T12 and burst my L1. Um, which, Doesn't sound fun. No, it wasn't fun. <laughs> um, and yeah, the L1 was in complete pieces, which was pushing on my spinal cord. Hence the um, no feeling in the legs. Wow. And I was operated the next day after my accident because I never got to hospital to about five in the afternoon. And, you know, after all the examinations and that i was uh probably done by 10 or 11 at night so too late to operate and yeah i was in in the theater the next morning um for six hours had two two rods and eight screws put in um they decompressed my spine and yeah fixed the fixed the fractures and yeah basically from there i kind of started getting feeling back it was probably like a day, two days where I noticed that like, you know, I could start actually wiggling my toes, you know, when I touched my legs with my hands, I could, I could feel the, you know, I could feel like skin to skin. Um, whereas before, you know, I didn't have that feeling. So, um, yeah, that was, that was that. And then again, I was watching, watching some video footage of you, uh, in rehab walking and it looked like, there was so much even involved in just, you know, in the early days, just taking a few steps. Yeah. That was, that was um, crazy. It was like, um, I was a toddler again, learning to, learning to walk, literally had to learn to walk again. Um, With a, with an injury like this and um, yeah, it, it, if you're not damages all your nerves. So all the nerves that control everything are damaged and don't have that, pathway to the brain to to make them work so yeah like you know I was I was walking and I could feel like you know I feel like I could walk normally but in my brain I could but like trying to rewire my brain to like lift my foot um you know all of that stuff um was really hard work and you know over time it it uh you know gradually came but it was yeah it was such a long pro progress um you know, getting to that stage where I could actually walk by myself because 
obviously it affects all your balance and yeah lifting lifting my feet was probably the hardest thing because like you know the further the further down the body the longer it takes to repair and so all the nerves that you know connected into the bottom of my legs and feet um I couldn't you know I struggled to lift my feet up when I'd walk and you know I'd I'd had a, I had a thing called drop foot so when I'd lift my mm. my right my right side of my leg up because that was the most damaged side um my foot would just drop down sure. um so yeah I mean still to this day I I you know constantly need to work on that it's something that you know I probably should focus on more but you know now I'm you know can walk and do that sort of thing it's something that I haven't but yeah I still um I still find that still pretty weak um mm. but yeah I mean day-to-day living was was tough and like you know when when you when you have something like that taken away from you um you actually realize how important it is in life because you know, let's be honest, everyone in this world, you know, wakes up every day and doesn't, you know, think, you know, shit, I'm lucky today because I've got legs to walk on. It's, you know, just a day-to-day living thing. And I, you know, that was me. I, you know, I never ever thought about, you know, myself being paralyzed and not having um, feeling in my legs. And yeah, when that happened, it yeah, made me realize, you know, how important life is and how fast it can be taken away. Were there any days though that where it was just too hard and you just felt like binging Netflix? Never, never, never a day that felt too hard. Obviously there were days that were hard, like, you know, a lot of challenges with exercises and all that sort of stuff. But I was just so focused and so determined to be back, you know, living a normal life and riding my bike, you know. At the end of the day, I was just more so you know, worried about my job and getting back to racing my bike because that was, you know, something that I've done for majority of my life. Um, but yeah, yeah, every day was tough, um, you know, relearning to do everything. But there was not a day that I was like, you yeah, know, I can't do this. So, you know, I don't want to even try this. Um, but yeah, like I did, I did suffer from a lot of fatigue. So, you know, I'd do a gym session in the morning and then have to go home and sleep. And then in the afternoon, I'd do another session, you know, home again, sleep before dinner. And then sort of, you know, that was my daily routine. I don't want to sound too woo-woo at this point, but you know that thing about a lot of us wake up and we take for granted what we have. Did this, going through this, did it kind of change your perception of the world? Like you go outside and you see trees and grass and do they look more beautiful? Do you just, you know, oh, does most definitely. Most definitely. I, I mean, uh, yeah, I spent two weeks in a Canadian hospital and, um, you know, going outside when I could go outside, like when I could actually like, when I was comfortable enough to like sit in my wheelchair and, you know, my partner would take me outside. Like it was just the best feeling in the world because, you know, fresh air, seeing people, seeing cars, trees, all that sort of stuff, you know, it really made me, um, appreciate what we have in life and um yeah just you know just being able to do those sort of things and you know waking up every day and you know being fortunate enough that you know I had a second chance at life and being able to go outside and smell the you know the freshly cut grass and you know see people happy and you know 
it was cool. And I, I honestly got to experience that sort of two sides of it because being in uh, Burwood Spinal Unit, you know, you meet totally, you know, lots of different peoples from, you know, people that are stuck in wheelchairs to people that, you know, were on the same path as me. So, um, yeah, I really got a perspective on life and like I, I went in there and I approached it like, you know, I'm not going to complain or say anything about, you know, how hard this is or I can't do this because I know there was other people in there that were, you know, suffering more than me. And, you know, every day I've seen people in wheelchairs that, you know, couldn't even move their arms, you know, with a smile on their face, you know, it kind of just made me realize that, you know, I'm lucky and, you know, I have another chance at, at life, whereas these guys are still so happy to be here and, and making the most of, of their life as well. So, yeah, it really put a perspective on on everything and to, you know, not take life for granted and really, um, really appreciate the opportunities that we, we get given. Speaking of taking life for granted, I mean, what do you, there's a lot of, I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of disruption in the world. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, you've got kind of social ruptures working their way through the States and, and globally, and, and you've traveled a lot you, and, and you've, you know, you probably experienced a lot of, uh, a lot of different cultures, but what do you make of, what do you make of what is going on? And it's hard to kind of summarize it, but it just seems like there's a lot of ideological polarization, you know, that's, there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah, I I mean, I try not to get caught up in it too much um, because it, it, I guess it just annoys me and I, you know, I can just go on about how, you know, stupid things are and, you know, that this could be done better or that could be done better. Um, but yeah, I mean, the world that we're living in at the moment is pretty crazy and, um, you know, just experiencing traveling with this pandemic going on really makes me realize like that you know this world is in in struggle when you know you see airports that have you know the likes of LAX airport with you know 30 40 people walking around it kind of just uh, it summarizes you know how bad things are in in this world at the moment but um yeah I guess uh I guess for us, we're, we're, we're really lucky because we're so far away from, we're secluded, we're so far away from every other place in the world. And I guess, you know, we kind of, you know, do our own thing in, in small old New Zealand. So, yeah, I, I'm very lucky that, that I live in a country like this and we don't have the problems like, you know, America and, and Europe are having at the moment. Um, so yeah, I to be honest, I kind of just, you know, try not focus on on that sort of stuff. But yeah, like, you know, it was pretty crazy being in Europe um with a pandemic on and you know, it just seemed like day-to-day living was normal, like people around, you know, people socializing, just all that sort of stuff. And I found it really crazy. Mm. Now that uh, this is not a very good segue, by the way, but um you know, you've I've I've um, read you. You've spoken in interviews about uh, you know the financial challenges sometimes because it's not like it's not like you as you said you're not like a rugby player or you don't have the responsibility, but you don't also necessarily have the paycheck as well. So, um, working alongside the brands that you do like Red Bull and then um, 
out of Shaco, out of really cool Hawke's Bay, New Zealand company. Yep. Um, but can you can you talk about how those things work and how important they are for you? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, obviously, I make enough money to live. Um, I don't have to have a day job when I come home. Um, and I felt like I feel like I've really set myself up with you know um, buying into the property market when I was making you know making enough money and able to save it to put a deposit down on houses and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I feel like with the sport I'm in, you know, there's not you know as much money as rugby or cricket or soccer. So uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, like I'm not a person that's all about money, but at the end of the day, you know, like I feel like you have to have some sort of money and, you know, at, you know, being an athlete, I want to set myself up. So when I uh, retire that I can just, you know, live a, a good life and comfortably and, and be happy. And um, yeah, obviously with my sponsors, they've given me the opportunity to do that with the likes of um, my team, which is, which is my main sponsor and, and Red Bull also um, have been massive, a massive help because they've also pushed me out of, you know, my comfort zone and, and push me into a, a world of, you know, other people that I've met, you know, um, which, yeah, which really help. And Adashika also, um, you know, been kind of working with them for the last two years. I have um, some some family friends and friends that, that work there. So I've kind of, you know, just been in touch with them. And um, yeah, I feel like it's a great brand that has come out of New Zealand because I know, I know that collagen um, is, is a massive thing at the moment and, and I think it's, you know, a billion dollar industry from what I've heard. And yeah, to, to have a company um, like them from Small Hawks Bay is, is pretty amazing. And um, yeah, I guess the likes of, of them being able to get me on to, you know, something like this with you guys is, is pretty special. So yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I guess for myself, in the sport I am in, um, I have the time for this. I don't have, you know, scheduled um, places that I've got to be, um, you know, the, the likes of rugby players. So, yeah, I feel like I'm uh, really, really grateful for, for the opportunities that my sponsors have given me. And obviously, you know, you, I mean, your body is very important and your joints and that kind of thing. Does the, 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 does the collagen help in that respect? So is it part of your, part of your routine? Yeah, for sure. Um, it has been a massive help for me um, over over my injury. And um, I really, you know, I took it every day, which, you know, I felt like, you know, helped heal my body, um, helped heal my bones. Um, yeah, I mean, the best example I could give was when I broke my collarbone um, in 20... 18 and I and I had a period of six weeks from when I finished my race to my next race and um, I wanted to be back in Europe to race that race so I got home and I like you know did all this research and found what you know what was best to help heal bones quickly so I got onto the collagen and um, I was just genuinely interested to see you know if it was actually you know if it actually really helped me so I was going I think every, I think it was every week or two weeks I was going for x-rays and um, yeah, from like my first x-ray to my last x-ray 
and in between, I really noticed the big difference from taking the collagen with the, with the bone healing. Obviously I, I worked with some other people of helping, you know, try heal that, but I felt like that was a massive factor in, in my recovery too. And I, I just, it was crazy to watch like the healing process over four weeks. So I was back on my bike in four weeks, I was able to do a press up within three weeks. And, you know, I was told that, you know, you're probably going to be out for two months. Um, so yeah, I really feel like uh, the collagen has been a massive benefit for me. I missed the, uh, I missed the collarbone break in my, in my research, but I shouldn't uh, be surprised. Do you, is, is there, a, is there, has there been any moment or even your partner like while you've been in hospital with, with either a broken back or broken collarbone or, or broken something, has the thought crossed your mind that maybe you should do a softer sport like kickboxing, just something gentler? Never for myself. No, probably for my partner. Yes. Um, I really, I mean, yeah, what I put her through was hell um, for, you know, a good part of, of six months. So she was, yeah, she was pretty off me going back and racing. She really didn't want that to happen, but I think, you know, she kind of, figured out that, you know, there was no, there was actually going to be no stopping me from going back and racing. And she kind of like, you know, realized that it was my job. Um, and she accepted that, um, which took a long time, but I think when she knew that I could ride my bike and I could ride it fast, she, yeah, she didn't, uh, she didn't hold back of letting me go away and, and compete again. And I think that sort of gave her some comfort as well of, of, you know, knowing that I can still ride my bike and still do the job I did before, if not better. So, yeah, there were, were was a point of time that she thought, oh, yeah, no, you shouldn't be doing this sport. But, yeah, never, never ever crossed my mind. How old were you when you when you first got on a on a mountain bike? Um, I was, I think I was around eleven or twelve. So I started quite late. I'd ridden bikes all my life, but mountain biking, I started, yeah, reasonably late. Did, did, it, did something click for you then? Did you know that this would be, that this would actually be something? Well, not really. Like, you know, I've grown up with, uh, you know, not having any fear. I've always been reckless, just, you know, whatever it was, playing rugby, riding bikes, motorbikes. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, I, at the time I never thought that I could actually make a career out of it and be doing what I'm doing now until um, I guess it was probably 2008 when I got selected for the New Zealand team to go race at World Champs. Um, you know, I, I had friends at that time competing overseas and riding for for pro teams. Um, so, yeah, I looked up to them and I, you know, obviously deep down I wanted to be like them, but I never thought the opportunity would come for me. And then, yeah, when I traveled to Europe for my first time in 20, 2008. Um, yeah, I experienced the whole whole other side of mountain biking and, yeah, raced my first world champs. And then from there, you know, sort of uh, each year I progressed and had a small team to a bigger team to, you know, a proper, you know, contract where I didn't have to come home and work in the mm -hmm. off-season. Did, um, you were talking before about you know the the lines and and the technical side of things and how a lot of that doesn't you know you're not even thinking about it at the time. Does that does that 
bleed into other parts of your life? Like, are you going, are you in a supermarket and you've got a trolley and you, are you conscious of the most efficient lines down the, down each aisle? For sure. Um, probably more so in the car. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, my mind is just always constantly going and like, yeah, it's, yeah, definitely like, you know, I go through a supermarket and I'm like, okay, I'm going to take this line because it's going to be quicker. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy um, being an athlete and how the mind works because I guess like, you know, each athlete would, would be, you know, would be wired like that. It's, it's pretty crazy. Mm. 